Hey folks, we're so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, like Apple or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. We'd also love for you to join in financially supporting the show, if you're able. You can find out more at OurBodyPolitik.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm guest host Callie Crossley, host commentator for GBH Boston, sitting in for Farai Chidea. On May 2nd, the Writers Guild of America, or WGA, which represents more than 11,000 writers, officially went on strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP. And on July 14th, SAG-AFTRA, which represents nearly 160,000 media professionals and entertainers, also went on strike against the AMPTP. It's the first time in 63 years that both the Actors and Writers Unions have been on strike together. The demands from writers and actors are centered around fair compensation, particularly when it comes to streaming services, and how emerging tech like AI comes into play in TV and film projects. On our show, we're digging into the strikes and taking a closer look as to how they're affecting writers of color and their future in Hollywood. But first, what's it like to break into Hollywood as a black woman after a major career pivot? Erica Green Swafford is a television executive, story editor, writer, and producer, and she's worked on some of the biggest shows on television, ones you've definitely heard of and maybe binge-watched, including... How to Get Away with Murder, New Amsterdam, and The Mentalist. But she didn't always know this was where she'd end up. Today we're talking with her about her winding path to television and what it's like to walk the picket line with the Writers Guild of America. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thanks so much for having me, Callie. So when we talk about your winding path, it's because you've had a very unconventional path to becoming a television writer. What did you think you were going to do when you were in college? I I knew for sure because I knew when I was probably seven years old, I was going to be a chef, just like Julia Child. That was my thing. I was going to be famous and be a chef, maybe with better hair than Julia Child. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're you're going the path of chef. And, and where did that lead you initially? I went to the hotel school at Cornell University. I went in thinking I was going to come out, uh, create some sort of boutique hotel chain in the Caribbean somewhere uh, and be a hotelier. So I went full hog for it for a while there. Now, before we go back to take a deeper dive on some of this stuff, tick off all the jobs you had from there to now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have been a front office manager of a hotel. I have been a sales manager at a hotel. I have been an assistant at a cable network. I turned into a lower level executive at a cable network. I have been a writer. I have also been a cooking instructor. Uh, I have also taught dance classes on the side. There are a lot of 
you know, <laughs> random things that I have done. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, you've talked before about starting to transition from your previous career in hospitality to getting an MBA and then to a career in television. Yes. So in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to think about what made you think as you were really doing well, flourishing in the hospitality field to go toward getting an MBA? You know, I thought when I started to go into uh, doing a lot more theater for myself, for example, I, I did uh, comedy at night. I did improv with a group in Washington, D.C. called Comedy Sports. I knew that the entertainment industry had not only a creative component, but a business component. I decided to apply to grad school because I didn't have any other understanding of other ways to get into the business at that point in time. Like being a writer wasn't even necessarily on my radar. It was just being a creative and being the most creative person I could be within the entertainment industry, whatever that looked like. And so that's why I applied to business school was, well, you know, I'll get the business sense and then I'll also get a lay of the creative land in California. And so that's why I applied to the UCLA Anderson School of, of Management because I thought I could get a good mix of the two. But to be clear, you didn't really have a specific mission in mind. You were not at all feeling your way. Um, yeah, I was feeling my way. Yes. <laughs> I, along the walls, touching all <laughs> touching all the, the bricks and the woodwork and everything, uh, just trying to figure out what it meant to be in entertainment because it was so uh, opaque. What I think is interesting um, in your TED Talk, and you do have one, <laughs> um, <laughs> You really pay attention to this period of sort of a freeing stream of consciousness as you're trying to figure out, what am I doing? You're wandering here. You're trying on things, as you say. You're touching the walls. <laughs> um, and you make the point that you should honor this, uh, honor this time, honor your rut, you say. Thank your shame spiral for its purpose. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, at that point in time, when I was in the middle of a shame spiral, and we all hit them at different points in our lives, I couldn't understand why everything wasn't so clear. And then I started to appreciate the beauty within the mess. And I started to hear a potential for myself within that shame spiral by just allowing myself to try things and to fail. Now, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people have could have followed the same kind of serial wandering that you did, bumping from here to there, trying to find themselves, and they never focus or settle down in any place. They just right. keep wandering. Mm -hmm. But as you know, Gandalf wisely said to Frodo in Lord of the Rings, all who wander are not lost. Hey. So when did you, <laughs> I'm gonna when give did you know? I'm going to you because I love a Gandalf reference. Hey. Gandalf the White. <laughs> Versus Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> That's true. How did you know when it was time to move from unstructured to structured? You, you're getting the feelings, but mm -hmm. when when did you know the moment was there? You know, the moments um, keep showing up to you. You may not necessarily be aware of the first moment, to be honest. Sort of made the decision while I was working as like a lower level TV executive that I wanted to be more creative in this business. I think as a person who is a black woman in this country, you just always feel like you need a whole bunch of bona fides so that people won't ask you any questions. And so there was this approach to, well, if I uh, log this many hours 
on stage. If I get this degree, then, then and only then I can make the leap. And so there were probably a lot of opportunities before it. But when Mm. I heard about a writing program at Warner Brothers, after I had written pilot scripts, after I had been on stage, after I had, you know, that opportunity met me Mm. at a point in time where I had already done a lot of work, (laughs) like a lot of work. And I wasn't necessarily calling myself a writer, but I was saying, well, yeah, I also write on the side. I also perform on the side. I also do these other things. I said, oh, well, you know, let me just go on ahead and take a chance. What could it hurt? Mm. And it was that moment that turned into a whole different career for me. Take us into the writer's room, and in specific, your first writer's room. What was that like? What were you expecting and what did you encounter uh, my first writer's room was at the Mentalist. It was really cool. It was scary because there is a degree of rhythm that happens where everyone starts to speak a language about how to knit together a story. You might come up with some disparate idea that then suddenly everyone goes, okay, that could work in the context of this show if we did X, Y, and Z. I was stunned at the ability of people to knit story in the air. They weren't even writing anything on a board. (laughs) They were literally just sitting there and seeing the acts in their head and going, yeah, but if you do that here, then you can do that there, but then you need to be in consideration of this. And at that time, I didn't have the dexterity or the understanding. And so I was a lot lost that first first season <laughs> that I was in television. And then also the fact that I was the only Black woman there. That's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> were you the now were you the only person of color, period, or the only black woman? I was the only person of color in the room. Mm-hmm. So every time you spoke, it felt like it was a big floodlight on you? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say floodlight, but you do get the sense that, uh, oh, I feel like I have to speak up for everybody because no one else is in this room. And that is no shade to anybody that I worked with because they are really lovely individuals and smart and very open to ideas and things like that. But I felt like I had to continually put my hand up. I called it the black girl hand exception, where I was like, yeah, but where I continually needed to to, to speak up. And even if it wasn't necessarily my experience as a person of a marginalized group, I, I felt like I needed to like plank myself (laughs) like a land, human land bridge to make sure that at least some of the issues of the marginalized got into that room through me. Now, you've spoken a lot about the importance of representation, both on screen and behind the scenes in television. How has that come up most viscerally for you beyond just that experience you've described? Viscerally, there have been exchanges where I have been told Uh, No, that couldn't happen that way by people who are of the majority population. And I'm like, "Mm, I think you're coming from a place of privilege (laughs) when you say that. Earlier in my career, I was afraid to speak up about certain things because I didn't want to get blowback 
And unfortunately, then the story suffered as a result. As I have moved up in my career, now I am a senior level writer and also just, you know, a more senior level human being on the planet. I let people know. how I'm feeling, how your privilege needs to be checked, how my own privilege also needs to be checked in different ways that my blinders don't allow me to to see. But in terms of representation, if you don't have people in the room, it's not going to be reflected in any helpful way. Can you pinpoint a time when your specific contribution as a Black woman writer made a clear difference in the final script? Um, I would say... My first script with the amazing, incomparable uh, Ms. Cicely Tyson and with Viola Davis, when she is having a moment where she is combing her child's hair and explaining how she's the one that (laughs) set fire to their house after they have been, um, unfortunately, um, Annalise Keating, who was the character played by Viola Davis, um, had been abused by her uncle and her mother had no other recourse. And so she burned the house down around this man. Um, And it was done while she was scratching up her child's scalp, who was at her most, you know, had her lowest point to date. And that came from my own experience of sitting in between my mom's legs and us having true conversations in that moment. And I wanted to have that reflected between a Black mother and her child on television. And on network television, <laughs> on, a, on a Thursday night, people were seeing um, Ms. Cicely Tyson have that conversation with her child while scratching up her scalp. And it, it was a, it, it's very much a Black experience. How does it make you feel to know that that scene is, well, I know we overuse the word, but it's really iconic, the one uh, that you've described from How to Get Away with Murder? I mean, it's become that. It's all over the internet. People refer to it. People are studying it. (laughs) It, It's a point of pride because, as I say to everyone, even though it came from um, my experience and my experience is decidedly a Black female experience, it is a universal experience because it takes place in the universe. With representation, it's not setting any group as a default, but we all live and we're all doing a lot of the same things. We're just doing them in different ways, but we need to respect and honor that those are valid (laughs) uh, when they don't come from a majority perspective. And when my nieces and my nephews and, you know, I'm old and crotchety and, you know, sitting in the house coat and talking mess <laughs> 60 years from now, you know, to be able to say, well, yeah, I did that is decidedly a point of pride. What do you think about improving representation moving forward? It has to continue to happen. We're in a landscape where everything is changing. There is this proliferation of platform. So there is no monoculture anymore. You know, if you can remember uh, appointment viewing that happened and we all were watching Who Shot JR, that kind of a situation doesn't happen because there are so many different outlets, uh, which also means that the audience is fragmenting. And if the audience is fragmenting, that means that there are just so many more opportunities to get out there 
the fragments of the audience as opposed to sort of imposing monoculture. And that comes from bringing in disparate communities in front of the camera and behind the camera. Uh, there is no reason why in fantasy we don't have more people who are of marginalized groups being a part of fantasy because it's fantasy. You know what I mean? Or why can't, you know, there be more Asian folks in space? There are so many other people that exist within the universe that are just as valuable and their stories are just as valuable. Let's talk about craft. Um, what are the tools and approaches you've found that help you as a writer creating shows on television? A lot of ear hustling, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Uh, don't be afraid, but if you are near anybody who is a creative, they're probably also taking in you as a person, the way you talk, the way you uh, express your opinion or you don't express your opinion. Um, so soaking in culture, that's a big thing for me. You know, I love Black culture, so I love soaking in Black culture, but I'll also mm -hmm. go to other cultures and hang out and uh, see how they live, how they approach life. And then for me, trying to figure out what I'm trying to say is kind of like my North Star, my guiding light. For those of us who don't write television, write for the screen, what are, what are some of the creative approaches and techniques you learn to make a character or make stories come alive for viewers? Here's a question. If there is a character that you're interested in and you go, oh, this person is hilarious. Well, why are they funny? Start thinking about the history of that person. So are they always trying to be funny because they come from a very sad existence? That is a way that you can sort of start to develop character. And how does that come out? When you are developing a story, there is always got to be some sort of conflict. And so big conflict is obviously, I need to get away from this person before they kill me. It could be as small as uh, this is the last Snickers on planet Earth and I've got to get my hands on it. There needs to be some sort of friction that the character that you're in love with has to undergo. And it's normally that friction is tied to something about that character. So like if you are looking at a person and you go, okay, as we have built really funny life of the party, self-loathing when they get at home, then is there someone who is looking to get at the soft underbelly of that person? And that's the one thing that this person does not want. Then that's obviously something that you need to sort of include because then that feels like a worthy adversary. And then you can get really good conflict out of those two characters. So just always think about opposition. So out here in the world where the rest of us don't write for TV, uh, the, the, the lesson, the mantra is show, don't tell. Yes. But if you're writing for the screen, you're showing. So you've got that as part of it. So I'm curious, what are some of the lessons you've learned as you were approaching, as you were approaching this new craft? Sure. Uh, definitely say less. I am a chatty person, as you can see. And uh, that translates into the way I start with my writing. It's very chatty. <laughs> People say a lot of things, but sometimes it doesn't take much. So um, I call it the Coco Chanel effect. Read through a thing that you're writing and then make the decision as to, is all of this necessary? Take something away. 
whether it's a line of dialogue, whether it's um, an explanation as to how this needs to happen, it is the editing that is the magic of writing, which is in turn rewriting. And so it's just getting down to the simplest version of something is probably going to be your best friend. Okay. Well, let's talk about the writer's strike. The writers in Hollywood have been on strike for months now. They're protesting lower pay, less stability, calling out a shift toward gig-based jobs that pay less, and drawing attention to the effects of streaming, like those so-called mini-rooms instead of the full writer's rooms that you discussed earlier. Um, Have you already felt the impact of these shifts? For sure. When I started in this business, I was on network television, and the residuals were the reason why I was able to sustain myself. I have seen sort of the change happen where suddenly streaming became a thing, and people who were doing the exact same work that I was doing were getting paid so much less. So this is the first time in a long time that it's a double strike with the actors out with the writers. Since 1960. So what are you hearing while you're out on the picket line with this double strike, if you will? That it's affirming. It's like, yeah, their struggles are similar but different to ours. But all of our struggles are labor struggles and putting us in a larger context with all sorts of other groups of labor. Yes, it is a craft and it is a skill, uh, but we are also very much a part of the labor union and we are a part of a labor movement. It might feel razzle-dazzle and it might feel real sexy because people get to walk red carpets, but it is very much a middle-class, blue-collar industry for the predominant number of people that are writers and actors. Um, So not to sound, you know, silly, but we're just like everybody else. (laughs) We are just like everybody else, wanting to be valued for what it is that we do. That was Erica Green Swafford, television executive, story editor, writer, and producer. For those of us not in show business, being a screenwriter for television or film may seem like a lucrative fantasy, similar to the ones we see on the small or silver screen. But in reality, the lives of the majority of TV and film writers are a grind, looking for the next opportunity, jumping from project to project, and hoping to land a job with stability and staying power. And now, huge advances in technology have upended how movies and TV shows are made and sold. And writers and actors say those changes make it easier to take advantage of their work. On this week's Roundtable, we have two members of the Writers Guild of America to tell us more about these behind-the-scenes challenges at the heart of the double strikes happening in Hollywood. Jeannie Fon Wong is a television and feature film writer who's worked on shows like The CW's Arrow and movies like The Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. She's currently a WGA strike captain and serves as a co-chair of the WGA's Committee of Women Writers. Hi, Jeannie. Hi. Nice to see everyone today. 
And Sylvia Franklin is a veteran writer and script coordinator who's worked on episodic television, including Showtime's The Shy, ABC's The Rookie, and Fox's Prison Break. She's also served as chair of the WGA's Committee of Black Writers and as president of the Organization of Black Screenwriters. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, let's start this way. I'm curious to hear from each of you what motivated you to become part of this strike. I'll start with you, Sylvia. To sort of reiterate what you said in your opening remarks, this is a historical event. This is a watershed moment in our industry. And we, as members of the Writers Guild, we're just not getting the kind of due that we've worked so very hard for. All right. Now, that was a very calm response. (laughs) I'm imagining... When you think this is your blood, your work on the page and pages across many shows, you know, how does that feel to essentially have your work discounted is really what's happening here? Well, I think it's indicative of what's sort of happening in the country right now. I think we, you know, our union is probably one of the more visible ones just in terms of everyone has their opinions about Hollywood and the industry and the amount of work that we do. A lot of people just don't know. They don't truly understand how much work goes into creating content at the level and and at the expectation that people have in the marketplace. So when we're not valued, when we're not, our, our contributions aren't respected nor paid for in a way that they should be, it's, it's kind of galling. And yes, I am being calm because um, that's the only way people seem to hear you. Mm. All right, Jeannie, a same question to you. Uh, Again, personal motivation as well as a professional? I'm slightly a newer member. I'm five years and under. And I was struggling with just making ends meet. I've, knock on wood, have got contracted work every year. But for whatever reason, whether things are stretched or not, there are some years I barely make it by, even though I've got an offer of employment every single year. And so for me personally, it was a sense of justice. I think Also for me, as a woman of color, as an Asian American, I didn't want to fit into the perspective of being someone who's quiet and just going to take it. You know, my favorite thing I heard someone say was being a badass Asian causing good trouble. And so all that to me fueled me into being in leadership. How about a experience? I know there's many that you could cite as writers that uh, when you're on that picket line, that keeps your motivation, your back straight, because you've experienced some things that, of course, we don't know from the outside. Well, people don't realize that television shows, just the people who are behind everything that you see when you watch it on screen, we're talking about a couple hundred people at the minimum. It's 200 people, and it all starts with the script. There would be nothing else if there wasn't this blueprint for how things should run, how things should go. And it takes so many people to actually shape it and mold it and get it to the point where it's ready for viewing at a level where people are willing to pay for it. And given where we are with our content and how we consume our content, people are paying for it. And when you work so incredibly hard to meet these incredible Deadlines that don't stop. I mean, once you start a television show, and I'm talking network television, um, writers are typically, they start working in in May, uh, late May, early June. And that train, if you're lucky, uh, it runs through uh, March or April of the following year without a break, except for 
you know, the Christmas holidays that lead over into the new year. There's no break. You don't get a vacation. You, you work, you get an episode order and you fulfill the order. And everybody else who's on that team, on that crew, you work like, you know, H-E double hockey sticks <laughs> to, to get it done. Um, and there's no stopping. You just have to keep going. And that means you work when you're sick. You work when you're not feeling great. You work when family and personal things happen. You get it done. And I, I don't think that people realize that when that isn't recognized in the way that it should be, it's really disheartening because you feel like your your efforts, your participation, your contributions don't matter. And we know that they do because people still continue to watch television. They continue to go to the movies and, you know, they continue to participate in a social uh, exercise that we all have started to uh, take for granted. Jeannie, what would you add to that? I would, yes, and that, that basically the combination of low weekly pay and shorter durations of employment is one of the big things they're fighting against. And that writing, it feels like such an ephemeral, like ungraspable concept, like how do you measure it? And the metaphor I always give people is that, especially for TV, I do features too, but for television, it's like building a house. That takes a certain number of weeks, a team of expertise. You wouldn't go live in a house where you, you got the plumbing person to do electricity, right? And I would say it's the same thing for a television show. You have the writer's room, you have crew, you have everyone, you have the showrunner leading it all. And even in the writer's rooms, there are people with their own expertise. And the big tech has come in and tried to dismantle something that's been working for almost a century. And like you wouldn't live in a house that was built shoddy in a short amount of time where everyone was overworked possibly threatening their health. And television's like the same way. The showrunner's in charge of hundreds of people. And to have writers, you know, work for a shorter amount of time, lower weaker pay, and expect them to churn out the same product, they're trying to disrupt the system. But I would say, to put Bob Iger's words back in his mouth, that is unrealistic. We as viewers of all these shows uh, have some concept about how streaming platforms work. We know that it's impacted the content that we see. But how much it's changed specifically in that process, we don't understand. We're talking about the residuals. We're talking about the mini rooms, the separated development period, plus the writing once the show is picked up. There's a lot of other things that are now being proposed by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers that have happened, and they don't want it to happen anymore. So, Sylvia. People seem to think you just write a script and off it goes to production. No, it doesn't happen that way. Writers' rooms are think tanks, and you have people in there who are trying to solve the problem of creating a world and creating characters and creating a script to tell us over a number of episodes, what's going to happen in the lives of these people. I'm a one-hour writer, drama writer. So in drama, there's usually 10 to 12 people in the room. What has happened over the years, that number has gone down. So instead of having 10 to 12 people, and some of these people are writing teams, 10 to 12 people, you now have like seven to eight people. So there's less people to do more work. Also with streaming in particular, Network episode orders are usually 13. The network would order a pilot. It is greenlit. You do shoot the pilot and then you get approval from the stakeholders. 
And then you have a focus group to tell you if they liked it or not. So the internal stakeholders take a peek. Oh, the numbers are good. The, the focus groups liked it. They liked the concept. We have this need for this particular show on this particular day in our schedule. Let's buy it. And so they order 13 episodes. The first episode's been done, the pilot. So now you've got an order for 12 more. Okay, let's hire everybody. Let's lock in our actors from the pilot. Let's hire a crew. Let's hire the writers. And then off you go. And so you spend the first three to six months just creating the first four to five episodes. Writing for television means that you're not only developing, you're breaking the story, you're in pre-production on one episode, you're producing it, you're shooting it, and then you're in post-production. This is all happening at the same time. It takes six months, six months to nine months to shoot six to 20 episodes. And that's if you get the back nine or the back whatever order. What Netflix has done, they've truncated the process. They've said, oh, we want all of the scripts now before you start, you start production. And I think I'll let Jean come in and, and tell you what happens after that. Yeah, it's both less people in the room and a shorter amount of time that people are working. And then Netflix has come up creatively to extract like series development from pre-greenlit mini rooms, sometimes with just one or two people working, doing the work of like seven to 10 people. And in addition to these mini rooms, hiring less people to do more work and working for a shorter amount of time is also they're having writers of all experience levels work at the same minimum and rate that they had in year one or two. So the equivalent of that, of someone who's not in the business is, let's say you're a teacher, you have 20 years of experience, you're expected to go back to the salary that you made at in year one or two. And a lot of times they just give these offers and they say, leave it or take it. So it's a compounded, pressured situation of less weeks, less people, more work. <laughs> Lots more. Writers aren't working 52 weeks out of the year, typically. We are project-based. So once your project is done, you're on to the next one. And for some people, that means if you are now working a truncated schedule where you used to be able to count on employment for at least six to nine months, now we're talking maybe three months, maybe out of the year. You're constantly looking for work. So if you're not finding the work because there are less jobs being held, and again, we're kind of a we're kind of like the NBA. There are literally thousands of people vying for a handful of jobs. And so if you don't have the contacts, if you don't have the network, if you don't have the availability, because uh, some people are signing um, contracts where they're tied up, you can't look for work. And if you can't look for work, you can't make your minimums in terms of getting health insurance. You can't get any money applied to your pension, so on and so forth. So there's a huge trickle down effect here. So let me be specific for the two of you, because Jeannie, you're Vietnamese, Chinese, the child of Vietnam War immigrants, and Sylvia, you're a black woman, having served as the president of the Organization of Black Screenwriters. If there are fewer spaces, and there were always in the past, I guess if you'd want to describe it as the good old days, fewer of you in the rooms, now what is the double impact, that those are my words, of having this strike where they're shrinking the process. Jeannie, you can start. The data shows that the majority of historically underrepresented writers in both features and TV tend to be those earlier in their career. 
the veterans tend to have been here for a decade or so longer. If you have all writers of different experience levels working at the same rate, if they're offering someone who has 20 years experience at the same rate that could pay someone year one and two, they will not hire historically underrepresented groups as much. The data is there. We have not reached those echelons as much in Hollywood. Like you said, it has a double impact of hurting queer, BIPOC, and um, disabled writers. I know we were talking about television, but I want to emphasize that in features, as someone who works in features, some of the abuses we're asking for them to do is to actually pay us, because sometimes they'll ask us to work for free, kind of like as a favor. There's a lot of pre-work, and they'll dangle the carrot of getting paid later. That's something I just want to emphasize. We would like to not work for free as well. Sylvia, given the fact that they're shrinking the numbers in the room to begin with, they've changed the process, there are fewer Black writers and writers of color to begin with, what really is at stake here as this process that they are proposing if it were to come into play? Representation, inclusivity, diversity, and, and you know, those differences aren't just along racial lines. It's, it's really about other groups who haven't been invited into the process as well. We're talking about people who are older than 50. We're talking about people with, you know, Jeannie mentioned it before, is uh, disabilities. And you don't see people who are represented in the writer's room who can, who can speak to those stories and those experiences, who can then put that information into the these scripts. And I also wanted to sort of point out that uh, television writers are also producers. So when we don't get the opportunity to get in and rise up through the ranks like you would in a corporate environment. Uh, we don't get the experience. We're fighting for the opportunities to stay in the game, to stay in the rooms, and to get the experience to then, you know, put put what we've experienced in our script so people can be hired. Part of the motivation of the strikes, the issue of artificial intelligence. It's a big part of the conversation for many industries, but for yours specifically, there's been talk of AI generating scripts. Actors have similar concerns. They're on strike, worried about their likenesses being used instead of hiring them and paying them for more work. What's your perspective on the role of AI now, and what do you think about it going forward? Jeannie? When I speak to most writers, and this is not me speaking in terms of what the negotiating committee or board in terms of strategy, but I think writers just want AI with guard rails. Like we want to have it be an actual fruitful discussion. Personally, for me, I think we're sort of at an inflection point. We need to decide as a society, what is our role in relation to new technology? And this happens every once in a while in our humanity. And I think we need to decide, are we going to value humans or profit? And so, you know, I think we're at the forefront because I think, you know, with private equity buying medical practices, with medicine talking about doing patient intake or therapy or pharmacists being replaced by AI, I think it's a bigger question of what as we as society want to do about humanity. Are we going to value people working? I think it's a really big question. I think it's something that needs to be addressed. And when this was brought up in the negotiating table at the end of April, the AMPTB's literal response was to offer us a yearly meeting. I forget the amount of meetings they said they would offer us. That's the equivalent of you going up to your boss and asking for a raise and them offering you a meeting on the etymology of the word raise and what a raise means. 
as opposed to actually countering with a number and negotiating with you. That's a clear example of how the MPTP did not bargain in good faith. The Writers Guild, we're here and we're ready to talk about AI. We've done years of research on it and we just want to build in guardrails. And I think as a society, we just need to decide, do we value humanity or profits? Sylvia. Um, I tend to agree with Jeannie. Uh, we do need guardrails, but you know, there's no discounting that this technology is here. It will never be able to replace humans in terms of our just our scope of experience in being human. It will never be able to replicate that. However, we can use it as a tool with the appropriate restrictions. It should never have the capability of being able to write the first draft or create the first draft of anything because we're teaching it, you know, the technicians, those of us who are using ChatGPT and the various thousands of other versions of it in the marketplace right now, you know, we're teaching it to basically copy what is already here, information, things, IP that has been already created by human beings. So it cannot create, it can just replicate. And we have to figure out out a way to make this work, given what we do and how we can do it better. We just want to work and continue to tell great stories. And, you know, we can use AI to help us do that. So describe for us what it's like participating on the picket lines in the strike itself day to day. Um, We don't have a sense of that. Those of us on the outside, we see you picketing various locations. But but what is the actual experience, Jeannie? It's hot, (laughs) Um, both in the metaphorical sense to have solidarity with fellow unions and now sag out here with the symmetrical faces. But it's also very just hot. Like it's a little bit, you know, dangerous. We have older members in the guild. As a captain, I'm constantly making sure everyone's hydrated, sunscreen, and it's tedious work. I know sometimes... On social media, you look at themed pickets and it looks like we're having fun, but it is not gloating because we writers know the effect this has on other industries, on smaller businesses. And right now, I think there's just like an overwhelming amount of solidarity and morale and that we will be here as long as it takes to get a fair contract. What kind of conversations are you having with other writers? while you're out there? Honestly, just depends. Sometimes I'm, I'm just catching up with people I haven't seen in years since the pandemic. So we're talking about our families, our friends. We're talking about how much our hips and backs hurts because I, I personally am not built to walk in the sun for many hours. I am an introvert <laughs> who likes to be indoors in the dark. And then now with like my actor friends out there, a lot of it's like catching up, talking to people. And if it's with my fellow captains, we're talking about solidarity actions and things that we're doing. A lot of times, even like safety issues with um, picketers, we're checking in with everyone, making sure all the dogs that are walking the line have water and treats. It's a little bit of being a camp counselor with a bullhorn, being a captain. (laughs) Sylvia, for you, what's the picket line experience been like? I'll agree with the hot, uh, the hot topics. <laughs> um, it's just, it's physically very challenging for a lot of people. And I think anybody who's worked outside can attest to that. It's hard work. And when you're out in the sun and you're physically going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for hours, 
we're doing this because we we want to and we have to. We are visual sort of representation of what's happening in the labor movement in this country. Just over time, our rights have been chipped away, a little bit here, a little bit there, but they've been chipped away to such an extent that people can't make a livable wage anymore. People are stressed out just trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet. And if you have a family, oh my God, I mean, it's it's challenging and what, what being on the lines with other writers and other creative people is, it's just a, it's a reminder that we're all connected, that we all depend on one another. So I want to ask you about the morale on the picket line. But before you answer that, I want to highlight some of the comments that have been made by anonymous executives from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Here's the one that's really gotten quite a bit of attention. The end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. That's what a studio executive anonymously told the publication deadline. Now, the, the organization itself came out and said, those anonymous people don't speak for us. We're, we're, in fact, working for a real deal. But I would imagine that that hit hard while you're out there picketing. Jeannie? I think there's been two types of reactions. There's been the Ron Perlman reaction. There's more than one way to lose a house. Anger, righteous anger. And I think there have been those who have just taken it lightly. Hey, joke's on you, AMPTP. We're already broke and <laughs> losing our houses and apartments. So <laughs> lots of dark humor, too. And honestly, I think it backfired. To them, it was a cruel but necessary evil to make our union along with the others affected by the strike, unhoused. And I think, if anything, that just made trauma bonded us again. And we'll be here as long as it takes. And I think it had the absolute opposite effect of breaking our morale. If anything, it made us more resolved. Sylvia, Jeannie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. That was television and feature film writer and WGA strike captain Jeannie Fong Wong and veteran writer and script coordinator and WGA member Sylvia Franklin. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We are on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm today's host, Callie Crossley. Farai Chidea, Nina Spensley, and Shanta Covington are executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Monica Morales-Garcia is our producer. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. This episode was produced by Andrea Aswahe. It was engineered by Mike Garth. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation. Open Society Foundation, Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, the Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.